Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. Hi, how are you doing today? Good. Um, we're with the MSU Museum working on our podcast today. Would you mind answering a quick question for us? Yeah, what's up? All right, so the question is, have you ever seen, like, drones flying in the air? Yes. How about you? Yes. All right. Um, and so when you see those, um, who do you think is, like, operating them? What's your guess? Spies. Spies? <laughs> like, companies. Like, businesses or something. I don't know. Okay. And um, follow-up to that. So hypothetically, um, if someone was flying one of those drones and it was recording you... Um, when you're outside, how would that make you feel? Uh, sussed out, for sure. Maybe someone's following me or something like that. I don't know. It, it would definitely be weird, though. Yeah, I'd keep my eyes open or, like, try to change my route or something. Weird. Uncomfortable. Yeah, slightly uncomfortable. How come? Just because you don't know what they're doing and could be anything. Yeah, how come for you? Just because I don't like the idea of people recording me. I feel like it'd be a little weird, but I don't think they're using it for a weird purpose, so I wouldn't mind. Okay. How about you guys? How would that make you guys feel? I don't think I'd really care that much. Um, privacy is not really a thing in the modern world anyways. Hey everyone, I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. And this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. Today, we're taking you outside the city and we're going up, up, up and away, hundreds of feet in the air. And that's because we're talking about drones. Later on, we'll look at some of the history of drones and the privacy issues that come with them. Arthur Holland Michelle will join us. He's the author of Eyes in the Sky, the secret rise of Gorgon Stare and how it will watch us all. So Natasha, when was the first time you heard about drones and drone technology? I would say all of the talk under the Barack Obama administration and how the military was using drones, I think that was my first introduction to them. Yeah, so they're some highly contested and militarized use of drone technology, but there's also some positive ways in which drones have been used in recent years. Drones are becoming increasingly useful to keep an eye on the natural world. They're used by firefighters to coordinate missions and put out hotspots. They help with search and rescues after floods and earthquakes, and they also track animal migration. But there's a problem. Millions of these drones are made in China, and the U.S. government sees them as national security risks. Avishai Artsy has more from Los Angeles. It's 7 a.m. on a Monday at a Los Angeles City Fire Department training center. Fire department employees are examining a collection of drones. Every drone is like a different tool, and there's not one tool for every given uh, operation. So we have little ones here, we have big ones, we have ones with better cameras, and there's just really quite a variety here. Stephen Hamilton is an inspector with the LA Fire Department. He points to the Mavic 2. It's made by the Chinese company DJI. These are uh, kind of the workhorse of the department, I guess you would say. This drone, we could go out, we could do mapping, we do brush fires, we do all kinds of different things with these uh, particular drones. The trainees have jobs ranging from search and rescue to emergency response. Diana Wynn is learning to fly a drone in cases when hazardous materials are released. So there's thermal cameras that we can use, and then there's also monitors that draw like air through the monitor, and it'll detect 
certain gases depending on what sensors you have in the monitor. Los Angeles was an early adopter of drones. Fire Department Assistant Chief Richard Fields started working with DJI in 2015 on a pilot project to custom-build drones for urban public safety. He says there was some skepticism at first about the use of drones, but that changed in 2017 after a brush fire in the affluent neighborhood of Bel Air. Firefighters used drones to detect hotspots. Not only were we able to see a larger area, but we could actually put on plots on a map exactly where your hotspots are. And so it, it reduced the number of firefighters you had to work or to what we call grid an area. It sped up the time uh, that we were able to uh, get all the hotspots and make sure that the fire was completely out. But the benefit to the public is that we were now able to lift evacuation orders much quicker. With large wildfires on the rise, and with the edge of Los Angeles butting up against the wildlands, urban firefighting forces are spending more time and resources fighting brush fires. Fields says drones have become an important part of that effort. But there are months of training that go into learning how to fly drones safely and legally. Our pilots, and we teach them, you are a pilot putting a vehicle into the national airspace, and you have to treat it as such. You're not a hobbyist, and that drone is not a toy. So we have a very controlled process to make sure that, that anybody that looks at LAFD's drone program, that we're crossing the T's, dotting the I's, even in practice session, because if you train this way, you'll perform that way in an emergency. Fields says that members of the public have expressed fears of snooping drones, and he's had to work to dispel those concerns. We're reviewed by our fire commission and our independent assessor for every flight that we make. And that information is also available to the public upon request. We show the drone wherever we can. We spend time going to homeowners association meetings and neighborhood councils. We, we certainly present to our city council so they can have that conversation with their constituents. The intent of, of the drone is not to record anything because the value of the drone is being able to see things as they happen in real time, and that's by using the cameras. So we truly don't record very much at all. But when we do, we have, we have a very uh, clear practice and policy about what we do with that recorded information. The fire department also had the American Civil Liberties Union review its drone policy and adopted its recommendations. But there are other concerns the fire department is reckoning with, and those are the concerns of the federal government over its fleet of DJI drones. We've had Pentagon officials talk about how they believe that there's information from these drones that is getting sent back to Beijing. Brendan Carr is the senior Republican on the Federal Communications Commission. He has proposed banning federal spending on DJI drones because of security risks. The commissioner declined our interview request, but on the TV network News Nation, Carr pointed out that several federal agencies have grounded their DJI drones, including the Departments of Homeland Security, Defense, Interior, and Commerce, due to concerns that drones are collecting sensitive data and sending it to China. If there's mitigating evidence, I'm happy to see it, but the evidence thus far tells me we should immediately start the process of putting them on the FCC's covered list, which in the interim would mean there wouldn't be federal dollars potentially for these drones, but also in the long term, we're looking at taking our covered list and prohibiting those devices from operating in the U.S. altogether. Adam Lisberg, a spokesperson for DJI, denies these allegations. The government edition drones have no internet connection. There is no possibility that the photos, the videos, the logs of your flight 
no possibility that any of that is going to somehow get siphoned off through the internet. Over the years, there have been studies by multiple government agencies, including the Department of Defense, Department of the Interior, Department of Homeland Security, that have looked very closely at DJI drones down to the source code level and said, no, they are not transmitting data secretly to anyone else. DJI has been accused of other things, allowing their drones to be used to survey and track ethnic and religious minorities in China, including the Muslim Uyghur minority in Xinjiang, and for leaking GPS data to the Russian military in its invasion of Ukraine. DJI denies these allegations as well and says it suspended operations in Russia and Ukraine. Lisberg says the government's moves against DJI have more to do with the trade war between the U.S. and China. A lot of the opposition to the use of our drones does seem to be political, and it's tough to push back about that. We don't want to be involved in politics. The U.S. Department of Interior also declined our interview request, but Jeff Rupert, who directs the department's Office of Wildland Fire, had this to say at a congressional hearing in 2019. Technology is helping us to prevent and manage catastrophic wildfires. The use of unmanned aircraft systems, or UAS, is a perfect example of technology and leveraging it to fight wildfires in safer and more efficient ways. Last year, the department conducted over 700 UAS missions on more than 70 wildfires, and we're on track to surpass that this year. Drones are now being used not just to fight wildfires, but to prevent them through something called controlled or prescribed burns. Those are when fire crews start small, manageable fires to burn up dry wood and brush. Carrick Detweiler is the CEO and co-founder of Drone Amplified, which uses a system he helped invent called Ignis. Which is an aerial ignition system that attaches to drones that allows firefighters to actually start both prescribed burns and to do backburns on wildfires to fight fire with fire. Ignis is about the size of a shoebox. It carries flammable ping-pong-sized balls filled with a chemical. Right before they're dropped, a second chemical is injected into each ball, which starts a reaction. So after we drop them, 30 to 60 seconds later, they start a small fire. And we can carry four or 500 of these so that you you can do these ignitions over large areas. So instead of somebody on foot lighting the fires, a drone can do it safer and faster. Ignis was originally designed to attach to a DJI drone. So when we started out, we evaluated a number of drones and actually started out using a DJI system um, because it was the most reliable, capable, and lowest cost. So, you know, when a little over a year ago, uh, the Department of Interior grounded their whole entire uh, drone fleet, that really set back that program. Now, fortunately, they have been able to get some emergency waivers to be able to continue to use some of the systems they have on wildfires, but it put a halt to all the growth of the program. So over the past, actually, a little like year, year and a half, we've worked closely with Forest Service in identifying other non-Chinese drones that could you know, carry our system and adapting those drones and, and our system to work Detweiler says he supports building a domestic drone industry. But for now, he says, American drones cost far more than DJI ones. They don't have the same capabilities, and they take longer to produce and ship. He also doesn't have the same concerns about China spying via drones. From the start, when we started using DJI drones with the Department of Interior a number of years ago, 
we actually developed custom software that firewalled all communications from the drone to the outside world. So I think you know saying that you can't buy them is really an overstep if you're really just concerned about data security. You can put some of these policies in place to ensure that you don't have any you know, data leakage. Sam Lindblom is the Director of Land Management and Fire Program Manager for the Virginia chapter of the Nature Conservancy. He says drones play a critical role in his group's work. Out on the eastern shore, we regularly use drones to map changing shorelines, to look at uh, bird populations. We can fly the drone really high up in the sky and actually monitor migratory bird populations without disturbing them, where we used to do that all on foot. Uh, and it was really difficult to get good counts. In our firework, we're primarily using drones to help us ignite prescribed burns. And with the infrared camera that we carry on board with the drone, we can see where the fire is at any time through smoke, through clouds, at night. Right now, 100% of the drones that the Nature Conservancy uses in Virginia are made by DJI. It feels like the iPhone of drones. They just work all the time. You charge them up, turn them on, connect them to your phone or, your, or the controller, and away they go. No frills, no fuss. So they've been very reliable. Lynn Blum also doesn't see a reason for the proposed ban on DJI drones. I'm pretty confident that if China was interested in acquiring high-resolution forestry images, they're already doing it. You know, I don't think they need my drone. Like, it's beyond me to think that this is a real problem. Romeo Dersher is vice president of public safety at Aterion, an open-source software platform for drones and a former DJI exec. He advocates for using drones for public safety and has helped coordinate drone surveillance during several California wildfires. He, too, sees the proposed DJI ban as an overreach. What we do have to understand is there's multiple levels of government use. If we use a drone for um, wildland mitigation, or if we use a drone to do a nuclear power plant inspection, those are very, very different scenarios. And you cannot just apply one rule to both because then you do exactly what is happening now. You're taking away a tool from public safety that is saving lives and in mitigating risks to our first responders. And that is the wrong approach. Dersher says the future of public safety will involve drones and other robots in the air, on the ground, and in water, communicating and sharing data in real time. My future vision is that in the not-too-distant future, we will be thinking about fleets of these drones, especially when we have a search and rescue operation. Why just fly one drone? Why not fly 10 drones that simultaneously work together, that scan an entire area but for all of this to happen, we, we really need the assurance that we have technology that works and it's easy to use. Okay. okay. Descend back down to 10 feet. Descending down to 10 feet. And then capture image one again. Back in Los Angeles, drone training continues. But the ongoing battle between Washington and Beijing has LA Fire Assistant Chief Richard Fields nervous it will certainly have an impact across public safety. Especially in Southern California, we're surrounded by state and federal land in the wildland. If DJI, which is probably 90% of what Department of Interior flies for, for their drones, that gets grounded, they can't buy it, support it, or use it, then 
that significantly hampers their operation. Where their resources fall short, state or local resources will come in and fill those gaps. But the rule would say that I can't even fly my DJI drone if I'm on federal land. So it eliminates a, a major resource that, that truly has value uh, for public safety and, and mitigating emergencies. There's no question about that. Fields and thousands of other public officials like him are preparing for the passage of a ban on federal spending on DJI drones. While they test out other brands and diversify their fleets, they agree that regardless of what happens to DJI, drones for the use of public safety are here to stay. I'm Avishai Artsy in Los Angeles. Now, our producer David Lyons will talk with author, researcher, and journalist Arthur Holland Michelle. His book, Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gordon Stair and How It Will Watch Us All, details how the Pentagon developed the Gorgon Stair surveillance technology to monitor enemies overseas and is now being used in our own backyards. He also writes about drones, surveillance, and artificial intelligence for publications like Wired, Vice and the Atlantic. So my name is Arthur Holland Michelle. I'm an author and a researcher focusing on uh, emerging surveillance and military technologies. I'm a, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. I got into these topics because when I was in college, I had the strange but ultimately fruitful idea to start doing research on drones. And through that, along with a friend in college, Dan Gettinger, we, we launched a project that became the Center for the Study of the Drone. And we, we studied drones in all of their forms uh, from 2012 until 2020. That's really interesting, like 2012 to 2020. So we've got an eight-year span there. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, in your research, how drone technology evolved and maybe the origins of it? So, depending on how you define drones, the technology has existed in one form or another for well over a century now, actually. Predominantly in, in the military space in the form of what nowadays most people would say is more like a remote-controlled aircraft. The technology has gone through a whole range of different incarnations and uh, primarily it has been used for surveillance. Have you seen kind of like this balance being struck between uh, quote-unquote good and bad uses of drone technology? It's, it's kind of a theme that's come up through our series uh, on surveillance overall is that these technologies are not necessarily inherently good or bad, but the uses of them can can have positive and negative impacts on people. And uh, is there more of a balance between good and bad now? You know, it's hard to say that when the technology is used for what is ostensibly a, a positive purpose, uh, that won't easily bleed into uh, something that is perhaps less beneficial um, for society. You know, that the technology seems to have this tendency to gravitate in one way or another, sooner or later, 
uh, towards um, the infringement of personal privacy. A drone may, you know, initially be acquired for emergency services to use in search and rescue operations. So the kinds of things that everyone would agree are, are, are positive. You know, if, if someone gets lost while out hiking, we want that person to be found. <laughs> but we've seen time and time again that a drone that was acquired for that original purpose eventually gets used for, you know, monitoring protesters um, involved in a, you know, a peaceful civic action or conducting surveillance during the serving of a no-knock arrest warrant. And it's happened enough now that, to me, I, I think we maybe need a, a little bit more of a nuanced understanding that goes beyond the technology being either good or bad, but being perhaps a little bit more realistic that know that the technology has these inherent capacities to intrude upon privacy. And we need to take that seriously from the outset, even if the sort of original stated purpose of the technology in any given instance is, is a, a sort of net good. One, one other thing that I, I, I might add about this, this military-civilian divide in, in drone use is that we're, we're actually seeing a potential new blurring of that divide as the Department of Defense in recent years has actually made significant steps in using more drones domestically. In recent years, that process has been, become much more streamlined. And one of the reasons for that is that the, the US military is anxious to provide drones to support domestic law enforcement, counterintelligence, uh, in addition to emergency service support and uh, search and, and rescue. And so in the years ahead, we're actually going to see a lot more military drone use in, uh, in U.S. skies. We've seen a lot of large-scale protests in, in recent years and really throughout history. But now with, with drones being much more affordable and, and readily available, maybe there's more, uh, there's more of a push from Department of Defense for using them, but also local city governments and police. Is it kind of the reality that uh, from here on out, if you're at a, uh, any protest of any size uh, from small on up, that you could expect there to be drones uh, keeping an eye on, on you at that protest, let's say? I think it's reasonable to expect that any sort of mass national security event, as it's sometimes referred to in, in the sort of parlance of the security services, that in, in any such future event that there is likely to be a drone or drones, plural, in, in the sky. But that's not to say that people should accept that reality. There are ways to try and advocate for stricter regulations around the use of drones. And uh, that there's a lot of discourse around that. There have been, um, over the years, a lot of local-level uh, ordinances, for example, uh, for... Um, creating some of these types of, of restrictions, although um, the fact of the matter is that a lot of these ordinances also carve out an exception uh, for those types of events or for the police to, to use drones, sort of however they see fit. But yes, it is a reality that we have to contend with now, but it's not, I think, a reality that we need to 
sort of throw our, our hands up in the air and just be happy to live with. Um, there are ways of, of perhaps pushing back. When we talk about drones, uh, inevitably we're talking more about our uh, surveillance culture in general in the U.S. and the policies because um, m- many of the issues with drones, they're, they're not really specific to drones. They're just different uh, in the way that they're actually manifesting. It's the inherent nature of surveillance technology. Uh, you know, it, it, it's almost a natural law of surveillance technology that in the absence of strict rules, any technology that is adopted for initially uh, good or positive uses will inevitably be used sooner or later in a way that intrudes upon uh, privacy in a, in a manner that is negative for society. It has happened time and time again. I, I can't think of any single powerful surveillance technology in history that has succeeded in being self-regulating from start to finish. So I wonder if you could tell... Tell me a bit about the Gorgon Stare program. You wrote a book about it, Eye in the Sky. As a general overview for someone who doesn't know, what what is Gorgon Stare? Gorgon Stare is a uh, surveillance technology that essentially consists of a very, very large camera uh, on the order of hundreds of times larger than you know, the camera that you might have on your on your smartphone. And these cameras are uh, used for aerial surveillance. And unlike the camera that you might have on a, on a regular, you know, garden variety drone, which can only look at one very small uh, patch of ground at any given time, uh, these cameras like Gorgon Stare can watch a whole city-sized area at once. Uh, it was a Technology that was uh, originally developed by the U.S. military and the Central Intelligence Agency for a very narrow and um, seemingly quite noble purpose, which was to uh, prevent ambushes and attacks with improvised explosive devices on on U.S. forces in uh, Iraq and later Afghanistan. It was used for that purpose. It was used extensively in the Middle East. But as we've seen time and time again, there was a bit of a slippery slope and eventually the technology saw uses that went beyond that initial stated purpose. It was eventually used through a a private uh, U.S. company to conduct surveillance for law enforcement investigations in the city of Baltimore and in a number of other cities. That goes well beyond this it, its original uh, stated purpose. And um, it has now been established by the U.S. judicial system that it actually runs afoul of, of the Constitution. It is an undue invasion of privacy when uh, law enforcement uses this technology uh, for investigations. Is there any instance where Gorgon Stare is still being used outside of its original uh, intended purpose? It's a little hard to say, given the, the secrecy that cloaks the surveillance industry. Um, And given the sensitivities uh, around the technology itself, the industry 
is fairly good at hiding when, uh, where, and how it it uses this technology. One can imagine that there's less use uh, now that it has been deemed unconstitutional. But there was interest, at least a few years ago, uh, from the Department of the Interior in using a similar technology to Gorgonstair for forest fires. Um, and uh, there have been experiments in, in other, shall we say, law enforcement adjacent applications. But the unfortunate thing that happens time and time again is that we tend to only find out about these uses of the technology when it's too late or or when uh, harms have already occurred, which is why transparency is the necessary starting point for any good uh, policy on, on surveillance technology. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing about the ways that we're speculating about what could be done. You know, we don't know what could happen to a technology, but we can count on this uh, almost fundamental law you talked about, which is uh, a surveillance technology finding its way towards some kind of an invasion of privacy given enough time. So I guess I'm wondering in the future, I mean, are there some things that, some trends or things bubbling beneath the, the public consciousness in future inflection points with drone technology that you see coming that we're going to hear more about or should keep our eyes out for? I try and withhold from peering too deeply into the future. One, because no one really knows what's going to happen with these technologies in the future. And and two, because it's probably very scary. And and so uh, just for the sake of our our mental well-being, it's, it's probably better not to think about this stuff too much. But we can expect that the technology is going to get a lot more powerful in the years ahead. And it's going to get more powerful in a few crucial ways. One is that uh, the data collection capability on these drones is going to uh, expand. The technology is also likely to become more autonomous, and that has a couple of key implications. One being that the drones themselves will be more capable. It may be possible to use uh, multiple drones to uh, scan a wider area at once, for example, in a kind of coordinated uh, formation. But it also means that forms of automation can be applied to the analysis of the data itself. Uh, This goes anywhere from tracking individuals as they move around in drone footage through to potentially in some, let's hope, very distant future, the application of a biometric analysis to aerial footage, um, identifying people, for example, in crowds through uh, facial recognition, which you could imagine would be very, very powerful in, say, um, protest situation. But again, it's it's a little hard to, to make specific predictions, but... Um, We can also, and the final thing I'll say on this sort of future trend lines fund, is we can expect the technology to become more accessible. It'll be easier to use, it'll be cheaper, thanks to the advent of automation particularly, you'll have greater collection and analytical capabilities finding their way into the hands of more local level, lower resource agencies. And and that is perhaps the most troubling 
piece because uh, the lower down you go on the chain, the less capacity there is for real in-depth privacy impact assessments, for example, or legal analyses or data protection. And uh, as a result, that's where we may see even more abuses happening. Do you know of any resources that someone could go online to kind of get a starting point if they're not an expert on drone surveillance technology like you are, but they want to make a a cogent point and give their local city council somewhere to start? Is, Is there a a place to look for that? Uh, yeah, there, there are places. Um, Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, has uh, a lot of resources. Uh, the ACLU has uh, been involved in litigation on these matters, including litigation at a, a state and local level for years, um, including related to drones and, and aerial um, surveillance. It's also possible to just, just search local ordinances from cities that have faced some of these issues in previous years to, to see how they have responded. Well, um, I think that about does it for us today, unless you've got something else that you, uh, you feel like we haven't covered. Uh, no, I think this has been very uh, comprehensive. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Well, why don't you uh, leave us with this? Let us know the name of your book again and where people can follow your work. So my book is called Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. Uh, the best way to follow me is probably through my website, Arthur Holland Michelle. And I also uh, spend a fair amount of time being grumpy on Twitter. And so if you're on there, uh, please do uh, say hello. And uh, yeah, that's it. That was author and journalist Arthur Holland Michelle. That does it for us today. I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. Thanks for listening. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Avishai Artsy and editing by David Lyons and David Weinberg with Vox Pops from the Science Gallery Mediator Team, Harrison Adams, Aliamel Avila Sanchez, and Caroline White with mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU-FCU.